to the Judiciary's podcast. I'm your host, John Misha, and in this podcast episode, we will discuss unequal justice by analyzing racial issues, economic inequality, and theoretical frameworks in order to identify and provide potential solutions. I'll be interviewing Nadia, Dominic, Jennifer, and McKenna. Matt Tibby suggests in the divide, unequal justice is largely a consequence of racialized policing and the existing wealth gap. This idea will be discussed and analyzed by our first guest, Nadia. What is the relationship between economic inequality and unequal justice? Um, When speaking of the general wealth gap, there is an issue of unfair distribution of finances across classes of income. In Politizane's video about wealth inequality in America, it stated that the richest American citizens make roughly 380 times more money than the average worker. And people love to argue that billionaires get to where they are because they work so hard. But do they really work 380 times harder than the average worker? There's definitely this imbalance in the amount of money coming in for people in low-income or middle-income families compared to the upper class. Um, to get into detail about factors that cause this inequality in wealth, um, in whiteness as property, Cheryl Harris states that white identity conferred tangible and economically valuable benefits and was jealously regarded as a valued possession in the founding era. She also brings up how the assigned political, economic, and social inferiority of black people necessarily shaped white identity. And this was all stated in legal scripts like in the law. So that shows an, an, um, an issue of economic inequality and unequal justice in one example. They both sort of affect each other. Um, unequal justice has been an issue since the beginnings of the United States government. White people have always had more money than people of color as they were considered more valuable property. And African Americans were known as having less economic means. So that racial wealth gap has carried through history to the present. It stemmed from unequal justice then and contributes to unequal justice now. Um, yeah, so in examples of this unequal justice in the present time is actually discussed in the racial wealth inequality video. Um, white American households hold 90% of the national wealth, whereas black American households hold 2.6% of the national wealth. So the bottom 50% of American households control only 1% of the national wealth, where likely over 10 million black families fall into this category and own nearly no wealth. So when it comes to the criminal justice system, when innocent black people are charged and put in prison for crimes they didn't even commit, this wealth gap can put a burden on black families. For example, um, when Kaylee Bowder was 16 years old, he was sent to prison for a crime that he didn't commit and his family was unable to make the $10,000 bill or even afford a lawyer for him. In his interview with um, Huffington Post, Browder says his family was already struggling financially and the public defender who was, um, who was representing him didn't actually have his best interests. So he spent three years in prison without a formal trial due to his race, his gender, and most importantly, his class background. And that shows how not everybody can attain justice because justice costs money and money is not equally distributed. Yeah, and even today, if you look at um, this pandemic where we're seeing not only Black, Indigenous, and Latinx people dying from COVID at a higher rate than white people, um, these same people are also grappling with extreme income loss. Um, I was reading an NPR article where they mentioned that 9% of the top fifth 
income earners lost their jobs, which is bad, of course, but when you look at the bottom fifth of income earners who are most likely to be either Black or Latinx, about 35% of them lost their jobs. And when you look at these jobs, you know, they're low paying jobs like grocery cashiers or mail carriers, security guards, you know, people who work retail or fast food, which also puts them at a much higher risk of being exposed to COVID as well. And so that's kind of just a perspective to look at how like, even during a pandemic where like so many people are being affected like everyone all over the world but like when you really break it down by race like black indigenous and latinx and marginalized groups are just being disproportionately um affected by this pandemic in so many different ways um and it's not just a health issue you know it's an economic issue as well and how does racialized policing, racialized border controls, state-sanctioned violence, and economic explo- exploitation um, play into economic inequality and unequal justice for, um, you know, Black people, um, in- Indigenous people, Latinx people, and so forth, and other uh, marginalized communities? Good question. Actually, um, in her book, The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander points out that more Black men are in prison today than at any other moment in our nation's history, and that more are disenfranchised today than 1870, the year the 15th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. Black citizens make up less of the American population than white people, yet the rate at which they are in prison is unproportionate. In Illinois, for example, 90% of people in prison for drug offenses are black. White drug offenders rarely get arrested and are treated much better when they do than people of color that are charmed, charged sorry, with the same crime. As Angela Davis describes in her book titled, Are Prisons Obsolete? Under the convict lease system, police go through poor communities of color and are rewarded more for the more people they arrest. There's no governing body around them to ensure that they don't discriminate, so they rack up charges for drug offenses in these vulnerable communities. The convicted people usually aren't able to attain proper legal representation, and so they receive unfair trials that give them records that haunt them for the rest of their lives. This makes it difficult for poorer communities and people of color to integrate back into society. The legal discrimination experienced by these communities helps widen the wealth gap and increases economic inequality so that minorities will always have less rights and means than the rich and the white. Yeah, I think it's very important to look at these inequalities from a racial, gender, and class perspective. When you look at what communities ex- when you look at like what communities experience the most state violence is always low-income communities. And Black women and Black trans folks, as well as folks with disabilities, also experience the same inequalities as Black men when it comes to policing and mass incarceration at a much lower rate. But nonetheless, they they do they are affected um, by these inequalities and systemic racism, just like, you know, Latinx, Hispanic communities, as well as other marginalized communities. I hope you were able to understand the relationship between economic inequality and unequal justice and what that looks like for many marginalized communities. But I also want to talk about what the article, the article uh, frameworks will address some of these issues. 
there's so many of these um, theoretical frameworks like communism, the social contract theory, um, restorative and transformative justice, and so forth. Um, Dominic, which theoretical framework do you think has the best approach to solving some of the inequalities that Nadia and I discussed? There are many issues in society today that different theoretical frameworks have addressed over the span of this course. The most heavily emphasized theoretical framework was Rawls's theory of justice as fairness. In this hypothetical societal setup, there is a hope that removing bias from representatives would lead to a more equal and fair society. Bias is removed by having advocates be unaware of who it is they are fighting for and who they themselves are. If the advocate does not know the racial, economic, or political makeup of their constituents and themselves, then this blind advocate will not have personal feelings or beliefs interfere with decision-making. Another theoretical framework discussed in this class aimed to eliminate injustice in society and was first introduced by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Communism focused heavily on economic injustice and methods to rework society in a manner that equalized the amount of work each citizen had to produce and sought to fairly distribute all of society's resources. This would eventually lead to a society without classes, where the few would not be able to exploit the many, and conflicts stemming from class struggle would disappear. A final theoretical framework worth mentioning is the improved social contract theory. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy credits Epicurus with being the first to mention the idea, with Hobbes, Locke, Kant, Rousseau, and Rawls each reworking the idea in their own images. Since Rawls, many modern philosophers have critiqued the idea in various ways to have the social contract theory best fit society as it stands today. The aim of the social contract theory is to justify adhering to the laws of society and showing how society should establish a government that truly benefits everyone. These theoretical frameworks have addressed inequality in different ways, but any theory that identifies an issue, brings attention to it, and attempts to provide a solution for said issue is at the very least well-intentioned, if not implementable and effective. Each issue that these frameworks address will be at least partially solved by the theory, meaning these frameworks are steps in the right direction but are not above critique and should not be considered final solutions to the problem of injustice. Yeah, and how do these uh, theoretical frameworks uh, make up a just society? Each of these frameworks address different facets of society. Communism remedies conflict between different socioeconomic classes and relegates or promotes everyone to the same status level. Justice as fairness eliminates bias and allows for an all-encompassing just society. Fairness becomes the law of the land, with no group having an advantage over another. Yeah, and there's a few countries today that practice communism, like China, Vietnam, and Cuba. How has communism worked or failed in some of these countries, and what are some examples that you can provide us with so that we can better understand um, communism? Marx's communism is the only theoretical framework we discussed that is possible to implement in society. Looking at the world today, the group in power in China is known as the Communist Party of China, and while they have not strictly adhered to Marx's ideology, it is as close as any country has come without collapsing or experiencing widespread suffering. Regardless of anyone's personal opinion on the Chinese government, it is undeniable that they have not achieved the social unison that Marx aimed for. Marx's goal was to eliminate class warfare and achieve a balanced society, but in China today, there is mass injustice on many fronts. 
Since true Marxist communism is not present anywhere in the world today, it is difficult to accurately evaluate the merits of communism in practice. In theory, it is no more or less viable than any other framework that supposedly works toward a just society. But in practice, communism has not turned out to be the utopia Marx had hoped for. Yeah, and you mentioned China, but I kind of want to bring it back to the States a little. Um, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, actually, because I don't really know um, like a lot on this topic, but I know a little bit, I guess. And I didn't really know that... Um, there was like this communist like movement in the south um and i still have to do like a ton of readings on this so i won't mention a lot because i don't really know a lot but i think like during the 1920s there was like this surge of like black people um joining like the communist party in the south in order to like solve like racial inequality and um you know and even during like the civil rights movement as well but, like, even today, like, I read an article, like, a long time ago about, like, um, one of the Black Lives Matters, uh, like, founders being this, like, train, um, I want to say Marxist. And um, it was, like, this big thing on, like, Fox News. But, like, um, yeah, we're still, like, seeing, like, Black people, like, use this, like, um, theatric- theatrical uh framework to like try to bring like racial you know racial and class uh um you know justice in united states um which i think is pretty interesting but i won't go too much into it because i don't really (laughs) i don't really know a lot so i won't be able to like um cite anything but yeah as dominic discussed earlier um the social contract does address some aspects of unequal justice, but many scholars like Charles Mills um, has criticized this social contract theory, saying that it doesn't inform racial and economic injustice. Um, Our third guest, Jennifer, will speak on this issue and talk about what Charles Mills describes as the racial contract. Due to the racial privileges that exist in our modern society, we see racial and economic injustices happen as non-whites, in particular black people, are being racially profiled and discriminated. In his reading The Racial Contract, Charles Mills argues that the social contract theory is only limited to white men meaning we are functioning under a white supremacist patriarchy system. We see this example in the Declaration of Independence where it is written that all men are created equal, but later on refers to Native Americans as merciless Indian savages. Meanwhile, black people were considered three-fifths of a human and also forced into chattel slavery, further proving that all men in the United States at this time were in fact not equal. Mills further explains on page one that even now, white men still take their racial privilege so much for granted that they do do not see it as political or as a form of domination. By being oblivious to their own privilege, we have allowed racial and economic injustices to exist, further allowing white supremacy to still happen in our society. Yeah, and we know that this racial contract theory um, has pretty much been upheld in the United States since its founding, like it's made things um like chattel slavery and Jim Crow laws pretty much like acceptable and okay for a very long time and everything that we talked about so far in this podcast has been enforced by the racial contract theory like this racial wealth gap you know COVID and also like just little things like education when you look at like how black and Hispanic kids you know are 
far behind white kids when it comes to like reading and writing and you know and sometimes like these these black and hispanic kids end up um you know falling into the school to prison pipeline which leads to um you know the criminal justice system and like kind of like perpetuates the stereotype and all these other things like this racial contract theory is like so much just a part of our lives and how and it just makes you like I don't know think like how white supremacy is so deeply rooted in our society and how it's like a part of our like every facet of your life today with the black lives matter movement and various other different movements we're seeing a lot of racialized policing and state sanctioned violence um with the protests and everything and um how is discipline and punishment being presented through either racialized policing or state sanctioned violence um mckenna our last guest will discuss this this issue I watched Folkhold's discussion of discipline and punishment, and it brought up a lot of great points about this topic. Folkhold's theories primarily address the relationship between power and knowledge and how they are used as a form of social control through societal institutions. In European society, it is custom to consider that power is in the hands of the government, such as the administration, the police, and the army. They were established to transmit and apply orders and to punish those who don't obey. However, obedience also stems from university and the whole education system, which appear to distribute knowledge and to maintain power in the hands of a certain social class. He advocates in squashing any political dissent with society. Balkal also recognizes that power is not just a negative, coercive, or repressive thing that forces us to do things against our wishes, but can also be a necessary, productive, and positive force in society. This leads me to believe that he would approve and support state-sanctioned violence. He believes that power is the main source of social discipline and conformity and should be exercised to achieve that. Yeah, so by listening to this podcast, I hope you're able to understand which theoretical frameworks address some of these inequalities and most importantly, what they lack and how punishment and discipline is presented in racialized policing or state sanctioned violence. Um, we're seeing a lot of state sanctioned violence in racialized policing uh, during the Black Lives Matter movement. And where, like I said, um, you know, black and brown people are disproportionately dying from COVID, but they're also outside protesting. And some of these activists have been targeted by the police um, and by the state and put into jail, put into these jails. And some of them have been held without bonds. Um, some of them haven't been able to afford, you know, the to their bail or whatever. And, um, and these jails are still grappling, grappling to control COVID, right? Like we know that these jails are COVID infest, infested and that's a huge problem as well. Like if you read the news, um, and just from one of my own personal experiences, I have a friend whose brother is undocumented and he went to a protest in Phoenix during like, I want to say it was late, like June or May, like whenever they had like the huge protest downtown, um, he was leaving the protest and he was walking to his car and he was arrested for like literally no reason and um he was he ended up being detained by ice and it was like this huge joke but that's just one of the ways that like protesters are being targeted they're being disciplined and punished just for like you know protesting against 
against state violence, really. Um, But yeah, that's all the time that we have in this podcast. Like I said, um, thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. Um, Again, I'm your host, John Misha. Bye. Thank you.